this weekend, I went to a, uh, a conference here in the Seattle area put on by Ligonier Ministries, which is, uh, if you guys haven't heard of it before, uh, it's R.C. Sproul's ministry. Uh, and they came and they put on a conference, and the theme of the conference was overcoming the world, how to live as a Christian in a post-Christian society. And next time they come to town, I will drag some of you guys kicking and screaming with me. Because this, it was unbelievable. Um, and I'm kind of, uh, yeah, I heard the best sermon I've ever heard. Uh, it was amazing. Friday night, Steve, uh, Stephen J. Lawson gave this sermon on preaching the Word of God uh, without compromise that was far and away the best sermon I've ever heard. So next time they come to town, I'm bringing some of you with me. Um, the, the conference concluded yesterday afternoon with R.C. Sproul himself, uh, who was confined to a wheelchair with oxygen tubes for, through most of the conference, but he got up there and, uh, and, and gave a sermon or a, a talk at, at the end of the conference on living as a Christian in a post-Christian world. And I was greatly assured that his conclusion is the same conclusion that we're going to come to today because as we continue our study in Judges, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at what it means to live for God among the ungodly, what it, li- what it means to, to live as a Christian in a post-Christian society. And for myself, as I have, have studied and prepared for this lesson, I've really forced myself to, to just look back on my own life and to see where I might find any principles um, you know, that, that we'll be studying today uh, at any time in my life. And I can't get around my years in the casino business when I worked as a table games dealer in Las Vegas. I mean, you want to talk about trying to live for God in an ungodly place. It's unbelievably difficult. I know. <laughs> Trust me, I, I definitely know. And, and, and for many of those years, those years that I spent in the casinos of Las Vegas, I, I really felt like God was completely absent. And I think we all know what it feels like to, to feel like God is absent. We've probably all had it happen at one time or another or for one season or another in our lives. Uh, we know what it means. We know intellectually we know in our minds that God is never absent, right? We, we know that. God is, the Bible uh, tells us God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. So, so intellectually, we know he's never absent. But then when things start spiraling out of control, it's like we, we lose sight of his hand in the chaos. And it can certainly feel as though he's absent. And in circumstances like that, we need to remember that God's hand is usually most clearly visible as we look in the rear view mirror of life. As we look back on our experiences, that's usually when we see how God had stepped in. That he wasn't absent, but that he had stepped in disciplining us, bringing us back to himself. But in the midst of the chaos of disappointment, in the midst of the chaos of of frustration or anxiety or, or confusion... We have no idea how things are going to turn out. We just want the chaos to end. We've all been there. But when it finally works out, it's often in a way that we could never have predicted. We could have never foreseen. And that's when we most clearly see God's hand at work as we reflect back on our experiences. And sometimes the chaos is a consequence of poor choices on on our behalf. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not a consequence. 
But there are certainly times when we make a bad move here or there, and voila, we're in chaos. Uh, every few years, the, the U.S. Department of Defense publishes a, a book. That, it, it's pretty short. Uh, it contains these um, stories of true crime, uh, stories about cheating scientists, uh, drug dealers, rogue real estate agents, and so on and so forth. It's called the Encyclopedia of Ethical Failure. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, the, the book is filled with true case studies of, of government employees uh, behaving badly. Um, government employees gone wild, whatever you want to call it. It's used to, to train new government employees how not to behave on the job, which... Uh, yeah, you want to see a positive example, not just negative examples. So I'm sure they, they offset that. But one of, the, one of the case studies that they have in there focuses on a federal employee who backed up his van to his office door at night, and he stole all the department's computer equipment. And he was caught just a short time later trying to sell all this stuff at his own yard sale. And it wasn't even hard to catch him because all of the computers were still plastered with barcodes and stickers that said property of the U.S. government. Let me ask you this. Who wants to buy a computer that says property of the U.S. government? Whoa, not me, but uh, yeah, you can see why that could create some real problems. Or, or there's this story, you know, for, for several years, two government executives apparently never took any vacation time, but as investigators looked at them, they noticed that they had taken lots of religious compensatory time. Uh, curiously, though, those days never fell on any religious holidays that the government inspectors could find of any known religion. Instead, their, their religious compensatory days uh, happened to coincide with the days that those guys were out playing golf. Hmm. So when asked if golf tournaments should be considered a religious holiday, one of the employees replied, they could be for some people. What a dumb excuse. What, a, what a, an easy thing to track. Why do intelligent, seemingly decent people do such careless, thoughtless, deceitful things? The current editor of this book, the Encyclopedia of Ethical Failure, offers this explanation. They say, quote, I found it didn't relate to grade or rank or gender. The main issue was that at the moment they didn't think of the ramifications. In most cases, when you would sit down with these folks afterwards and say, what were you thinking? They would be banging their heads on the table and saying, you're right. I wasn't thinking. Friends, it's a Dangerous, dangerous thing for God's people to live and act and think in a manner that's indistinguishable from the world around them. And to think more about the pleasure that we will have in the moment of our sin than we do about the consequences, what the consequences of our sin may be. In our study of Judges, we've seen so far that the Israelites had been thrown into this proverbial chaos as they had made more than just a bad turn or two or a couple dozen or let's keep going, a lot. They'd made several bad decisions and as a result, God had handed the Israelites over to their enemies, the very people whom they had put to forced labor instead of running them out of the land and clearing the land of these people like they were supposed to as they were instructed to. So these same people that they had put to forced labor turned around and returned the favor 
enslaving the Israelites. And we saw that this began as a, uh, this, this started off a, a pattern that we're going to see throughout the book of Judges. Israel becomes entirely faithless. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord disciplines them by giving them into the hands of their enemies. Israel serves the enemy for a number of years until they finally cry out to the Lord. And the Lord answers their cries by raising up judges. The Lord is with the judge. The judge leads, uh, leads them to freedom, leads the Israelites to freedom. They overcome the enemy, and the land has rest for a number of years. And then we go right back to square one. They become faithless. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this is a cycle that's just going to repeat itself over and over throughout this book. And of course, God's discipline is there. This is a, that's what we've seen so far. That's what chapter 2 started out with, God disciplining them. And his discipline is always, 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 always aimed at bringing us back into right fellowship with him. And the Bible teaches that God disciplines every single one of his children. When the Israelites turned their hearts away to serve the Baals, God loved Israel enough to discipline them. If I catch my kids doing something that could be extremely dangerous to them, of course I'm going to step in and take, take measures, do something to prevent them from doing it again. So God disciplines His children when they turn their hearts to the Baals. With that in mind, with the fact that God disciplines all of His children in mind, it's grace to be disciplined by Him. Because he doesn't spank the neighbor's kids. He doesn't take the, ki- the neighbor's kids out behind the divine woodshed and teach them a lesson. But he does take his own kids back there. He does discipline his own children. And that's God's loving mercy in action as he steps in to save us from our own desires and the practical and, and theological consequences of our misdirected desires and affections. Now, chapter 2 in Judges is is more or less a case study in God's discipline in the lives of his children. Back in verse 3, Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, told them, now I say, so now I say, I will not drive them, the people of the land, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And now we're going to kind of zoom in on what that might look like. We're going to see what that looks like Close up as we continue uh, in Judges chapter 2. We'll start with verses 20 to 23. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. The Lord's anger is kindled. It's the image of fire. And of course, most of the time, fire represents God's wrath in Scripture. And so we need to see that the reason that the Lord's anger, His wrath, was kindled against Israel was because of their disobedience, which flowed from 
their idolatry. But their idolatry actually started out long before they started worshiping and serving the Canaanite Baals. It started way before that. It started with uh, the first couple verses in the entire book. It started with them exalting themselves by doing things their way instead of God's way. And that should cause us to reflect because that's exactly what you and I do every time we sin. We exalt ourselves and think our way, at least in the moment, our way is better than God's way. And so the picture of the Israelites failing to drive the Canaanites out of the land is a picture of what it looks like when God's people refuse to give Jesus full lordship over their entire lives, over every aspect of their lives. You see, it's one thing to struggle with temptation, to, to have this, this, this ongoing struggle and struggle with yielding our lives completely to Jesus, but it's quite another to obstinately refuse to give Jesus the lordship over a particular area of your life where you just, it's not even a struggle anymore. You just let go and you go with your temptation. You go with your desires. You go with your affections. If you want Jesus as your Savior but not as your Lord. You're inviting the discipline of God into your life if you are truly a child of God because in his love, he wants to save every single one of us from our idols, from the things that we worship other than him. And as you look around our culture today, who among us is not tempted and enticed by the gods of our culture? Who among us isn't tempted to give God the lordship over most of our lives, the, the, the big parts that people see, the, the visible parts, and then to give the leftovers to some other god of the culture. Or worse, vice versa. We give most of our hearts to the false gods of our culture, and God gets the leftovers. And I fear, the thing I fear most of all for myself, for my family, for my kids, for my friends, for all of us in here, is not that we would become atheists, but that we would allow room for the gods of our culture to contend for the lordship of our lives with the God of the universe, who by his great mercy called us out of darkness to be his people. Full ownership. He owns every part of us. And for us to just take his lordship very casually, keeping part for ourselves and our false gods and giving part to him is not acceptable. It's easy to give Jesus lordship over some areas of our lives, but it can be extremely difficult to do it with others. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can address those difficult areas of our lives. So the question that we're struck with is, is how do we know if Jesus is the one and only Lord over every single area of our lives or over just a given part of our lives? How do we know if Jesus is completely Lord of our lives? Let's consider the gods of our culture. We're probably not tempted to worship a, a, a little graven image, although there are people in our culture who do that. In Nevada, at least, Buddhism is the number two religion. What do Buddhists do? They bow down before graven images. 
at the very least. That, that's only one of the things that they do. Uh, so, but what the question is, what does attract us? If not a little graven image, what? What does attract us? What do we strive for in life? What provides us with our identity? What gives us our sense of security? You see, the, the right answer for all of those questions is God. But it's entirely possible to give intellectual assent to good, solid doctrine, good, solid theology, and even to live good, moral lives, and yet have a heart that is completely divided, where part belongs to Jesus, and part belongs to money, part belongs to career, part belongs to sex, or power, or fill in the blank. And here's how we figure out whether or not we've given Jesus lordship over the areas of our life, over all these areas of our lives, or if we've divided our hearts and given part of ourselves to worshiping the gods of our culture and part of ourselves to worshiping Yahweh. Ask yourself this question. Am I willing? Am I seriously willing to do whatever the Bible tells me about this particular area of my life? Am I really willing to do it? No matter how great the cost, no matter how great the sacrifice, am I willing to submit this area of my life to exactly what God's Word tells us? Because the Bible is the voice of God in regards to those matters. Will you obey it? Not partially, but will you obey it completely? That's the test of idolatry. That's the test of whether or not Jesus is Lord over that area of your life. And if your answer is no in regard to any area of your life, we've already given our lives over, a portion of our hearts over, to some other false god. It's so easy for us to divide our hearts, to compromise, just baby steps, just like Israel did. And God's response here in verse 21 is to let his people contend with the sin that they refused to deal with when they had the chance, in accordance with his instruction. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Is there a sin in your life that God is allowing you to contend with? Because God either causes or allows everything. And if you are struggling with a sin, it's because God is allowing you to deal with that sin. And so is there a sin in your life that God is allowing you to contend with? And of course there is, because we all sin. We're all learning. That's what sanctification is. We're all learning how to give Christ full lordship over every area of our lives. That's what sanctification is all about. But here in our text, we learn that there are two very specific reasons that God allows us to struggle, to contend with our sin. First of all, God says that he will use the presence of the Canaanites. And by the way, the Canaanites represent the sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. So he's going to, to use the presence of the Canaanites in order to test Israel by them, whether they will Take care to walk in the way of the Lord, verse 22. Now keep in mind, when God talks about testing somebody, it's not that he doesn't uh, already know what's going to happen. How do you like to have a teacher who gives you a test and they know exactly what your grade is going to be anyway? So why would they give you the test? 
to show you. To show you. It's, it's to show the people. When God tests people, it's to show the people what their strength is or what the weakness is by bringing out what lays in the depths of their hearts through various circumstances. And we'll fail some tests, but we will pass some tests as well. But tests force us to learn, and they reveal what we have and have not learned. And so the presence of the Canaanites would force Israel to think. It would teach them to, to, it would force them to reflect and to learn. And it would cause them to evaluate their walk with God. It would cause them to consider their faithlessness and their failures. And, and, and they would cause them to seek God's wisdom and counsel to correct their failures. It would cause them to learn to hate unrighteousness, the unrighteousness that they once practiced. And it would teach them the thirst for righteousness. It would cause them to look inward and consider whether or not they're truly committed to God. This past March, March is famous for one reason, and it's not wind. It's basketball, right? College basketball. And this past March, a college prank by, uh, by a college student took March Madness to an entirely new level. Uh, Virginia College sophomore Danny Foley noticed that all of his men's basketball team's assistant coaches wore the same suit with the same bright orange tie. And so before Virginia's conference championship game against Duke on March 16th, uh, Danny and his friends went searching for some, some cheap clothes uh, around town, and he found everything that he needed at Walmart. He got the suit jacket that matches. He got the suit pants that match, dress shoes, dress socks, a white dress shirt, and the, the special orange tie. And so the next morning, he bought uh, a $30 ticket to get into the nosebleed section uh, just to get in the door, and he came to the game. And during a TV timeout, he made his move. He confidently marched right past an usher, right out onto the court. When he was interviewed later, because he was caught on camera, they knew who he was. They, they caught up with him. And when he was interviewed later, he said, quote, I walked right, beside, right behind the cheerleaders and onto the court and joined the team's huddle on the court. And following his team's big win, he went for the biggest thrill of all, at least for a college basketball fan, when the team's final buzzer sounded and Virginia beat Duke 72-63. to Yeah, yeah, I've always hated Duke. <laughs> Danny joined his team in the handshake line, and as the confetti was falling around him, he got to shake hands with Coach Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K, the legendary coach for Duke. And photos from the end of the game show Danny wearing a championship T-shirt over his suit and smiling in the middle of the basketball court. And after celebrating with coaches and players, he was finally caught by somebody on Virginia's staff. But he just ran away, and he got away because there was such madness going on in there. Now this is, let's be honest, it's, it's funny. It's kind of a, a harmless prank. But is it possible that we're doing the same thing only in a much more risky context? Much more dangerous context? Is it possible that we're faking our walk with Jesus? Are we wearing the proverbial, proverbial suit and tie as an imposter when we're not really committed to the team? Are we a new creation in Christ or are we the same old person just wearing a different suit and tie? 
And we often find answers to questions like this in moments of moral failure and idolatry. And so God lets us contend with the sins that we refuse to deal with in order to teach us to turn our hearts back to Him. And so the first reason God allows us to, uh, to struggle with sin is to test us to see, uh, so that we can see what's in the depths of our hearts. But there's a second reason that we'll find as we continue. Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We read, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. A little context is needed here. We need to understand the, the backstory here. Under the leadership of Joshua, there had been a lot of wars in the land of Canaan. Wars that the current generation didn't take part in. Wars that the current generation didn't learn from. Wars that the current generation just didn't understand. And consequently, there were lessons that they had not learned because these were lessons that were best learned out on the battlefield. One of the things that we see over and over again in those wars is that the people of Israel learned to trust God fully. Learn to trust Him fully and to do battle while trusting in God, knowing that He's promised all these things. He's promised us victory. And so they were doing battle, trusting that God would honor the promises that He'd made. That's exactly what we see at Jericho, where the Israelites were given victory without even fighting. All, all they did was, was march around the city for, uh, for a few days. God told them just to march around the city, you know, blow their trumpets and, and, and just shout on Joshua's command and to trust God with the rest. Now, let's say that you are in, in this army, in Israel's army, and that's the game plan. What are you thinking? You're thinking, this is insane. What kind of a military strategy is that? That's a less than awe-inspiring military strategy from a purely naturalistic, humanistic point of view. It sounds more like a a strategy that uh, resembles poking a sleeping bear. Not a good idea, but God wanted them to trust Him completely with what He had promised them to do, or promised to do for them. And so He gives them what would be, without Him, an impossible task. It's only going to work if God is faithful to what he had promised. And so they did. And they took the city. What a beautiful picture of trust. They they learned by their experiences to trust God. By the way, we do the same thing. We learn by our experiences. You can know it up here. But to actually really trust God, it's a thing that takes experience. And it couldn't have made any sense. This game plan couldn't have made any sense until they could consider it in the rearview mirror of life. And this is a lesson that had been long forgotten by the time we get to the first chapter of Judges. So sometimes God will allow sin that we've refused to deal with to remain in our lives in order to teach us to develop a dependence on Him in every situation, in impossible situations, even and maybe especially when depending on Him entirely doesn't seem to make the most sense at the time. So that's the second reason that he will allow us to contend with sin in order to teach us to depend on him when it doesn't make sense. Now, if you and I were in the shoes of the Israelites, it might have looked 
at this point, uh, you know, as they've been surrounded by the nations, they've been overcome by the nations, it might have looked on the surface in the moment like God was just absent, like he had just given up on them. He, you know, like he was the, the one holding the, 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 the flood back and all of a sudden he just, whoop, he's gone and then they come. But here we see that even when it seems like God is absent, he is fully in control. He's fully in control. If it feels like God is absent, let's just be honest. It's because we have turned our hearts away from him. And he lets us feel that. He lets us experience that because the heart that belongs to him will seek him and will draw close to him when it feels as though he's distant or absent or not involved when the truth is he's right there. He's right in the middle of the chaos, and he is involved. Because God doesn't go anywhere. God doesn't go anywhere. He's unchanging. He's everywhere. He's always involved, actively involved in the lives of his children, in the lives of his people. He's using our circumstances to test us and to teach us. He's never absent. He is always present. Let's continue. Verses 3 to 5. We read, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. How do you like to be a part of a tribe called the Perizzites? <laughs> Sounds an awful lot like parasites. Now, if you're interested in numerology, some people are, the study of numbers in the Bible, you'll note that there are six foreign tribes, six foreign nations that the Israelites are forced to live among. And generally speaking, the number six would represent the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity. So maybe there's something to that in this context, maybe not. But they're surrounded by the enemy, which represents sin that they haven't dealt with. They're outnumbered by a long shot, and they're forced to deal with the uh, the consequences of their compromise. They're forced to deal with the consequences of their idolatry. And interestingly, we're told that there are five lords of the Philistines, but uh, maybe a better translation would be tyrant. Uh, this is a, a different Hebrew word than the word Yahweh. The word Yahweh gets translated as Lord in our, in our Bibles when it's in reference to God. But literally translated, these are five tyrants of the Philistines. These were barbaric, ruthless people that we're talking about. These aren't guys that you want as your next-door neighbors. And considering that they represent sin that we haven't dealt with. Don't think that sin won't try to be a tyrant in your life. God had warned Israel about these people, all these groups, generations ago. We find them all listed back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. And all of these idolatrous pagan people are surrounding the Israelites and they're being used to test the faithfulness and the, and the obedience of the Israelites. So the question is, how are the Israelites going to do? How are they going to fare as they're being put to the test? Verse 6. And their daughters took 
And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. How'd they do on this test? Zero. F. Pretty much says it all. It's sad. It's, it's complete failure. They intermarry with the people of the land, something that they were explicitly forbidden from doing because God knew that it would lure His people away from Himself. God had explicitly told them of the dangers of intermarrying with the people of the land in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. He said, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And what happened? Exactly what God said would happen. They intermarried. They turned their hearts away from Yahweh. And they served the false gods of the land. It is a dangerous thing for God's people to live in a manner that is indistinguishable from the world around them. Friends, God has called us to be separate from the world. Separate in the sense that we don't embrace the idols, the gods of our culture. Separate in the sense that we are rejecting the world's value system because God's value system is incompatible with the world's value system. We don't even realize how ingrained the world's value system is in us, but every now and then we have these moments where it's like we get an epiphany, like, it's like we're just getting hit with a ton of bricks, and we realize that we've been embracing something that we should have been avoiding. That's why we must constantly, daily, examine ourselves, test ourselves. If we take personal holiness and personal purity seriously. We need to evaluate our hearts regularly to see where the desires and the affections of our hearts lead us. Do they lead us to God, or do they lead us away from God? Because there's really no neutral ground. We like to think that there's something in between, but it's a black and white issue. Something is either leading you to God, or it's leading you away from God. Paul said this to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, he said this. He said, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Who's the temple of God? Thank you for asking that, Paul says. For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst... And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This instruction to cast away and avoid the idols, the gods of our culture, isn't just an Old Testament command. It applies to us today. It's a command for Christians. It's been laid out very clearly here in the New Testament. We are to be separate from the idols of our culture because when we fail to do that, when we refuse to walk in His will and in accordance with His will as revealed in Scripture, when we refuse to honor and obey His Word as He's given us in His Word, we open 
the possibility of destruction in our lives. Not eternal, but temporal. We open a whole floodgate of sin. And when we give sin even an inch in our lives, we might think that we can just maintain the boundaries of that inch. You know, like it's, it's in this little box and I've got it over here and it doesn't do anything until I say it's okay for it to do something. But that's not the way it works. The truth is that if we give sin an inch, it'll try to take a mile if we have the attitude that's casual enough about sin that we would allow it that inch. We will eventually be casual enough that we'll be more than happy to give it that mile. It is a dangerous thing for people who belong to God to live in a manner that's indistinguishable from the world around them. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that doesn't mean that we need a a, a camp. We need need something away from all of society so that we can be completely separate. It doesn't mean removing ourselves from society entirely because that's where the mission field is and God has given you and me a mission. We read this, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us, always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ People should sense it when they're around us, in other words. There's something different about us. We're not indistinguishable. We're quite distinguishable because there's something different about us. And that difference is we are the aroma of Christ. But how effective can we really be at that if we're living in a way that's indistinguishable from the world? We're supposed to be a light in the darkness. Jesus said, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Or under a bed and not on a stand? In other words, why in the world would you ever be a light that you try to hide? Why would you not use it to illuminate the darkness? So we aren't to keep a physical distance from the world, but we are to guard our hearts and maintain a spiritual distance from the world because it's so easy because it's so tempting, it's so enticing to become worldly, to be, to be like a chameleon and just blend in with our surroundings, to talk like them, to dress like them, to act like them, to be just like them. Indistinguishable. God used the people of the land to test the resilience of Israel to be faithful to the covenant they had with God and they failed. They blended right in with their surroundings, becoming like the surrounding nations, rejecting God's holy standards, exchanging them for, 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 for the idols of the nations, the gods of the nations. And we have to see how tragic it is when we do the same thing. As Paul reflected on the faithlessness and idolatry of Israel, he said this, if for no other reason than to remind us that these aren't just stories that are there to tell us about the history of Israel. They're not stories that are there to make us feel good about ourselves as if to say, oh, I would never do that. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. 
speaking about the history of Israel. He says, now these things took place as examples for us. All these stories about Israel's history took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And so the challenge for us as Christians in the 21st century is to do the opposite. The opposite that we see Israel doing here. To turn from the idols of our culture, the gods of our culture, and to serve God, to serve Jesus wholeheartedly, devoting every square inch of our hearts and of our minds to Him. And subjecting every area of our lives to obedience to Christ. Because that's how much of us Jesus redeemed. He redeemed us entirely, And by His grace, we belong to Him entirely. Do you realize the implications? Do you you realize how deeply He must love us? He loves us enough that He redeemed the flaws and the failures of His people. He didn't just redeem the good things about us, the things that people like, the things that we like. He didn't just redeem things about us that are maybe yeah, appealing or good. He redeemed the failures He redeemed our sins. He took them upon Himself, bearing the wrath of God against sin on the behalf of His people. Why and how could we ever deny Him the full and unconditional lordship of every area of our lives? As they say, resistance is futile. If you are a child of God and you are denying Him access to a certain part of your life, do not think that He won't discipline you. You will be changed, whether you like it or not. He's not going to leave you the way you are. Praise the Lord for that. Imagine this scene in your minds. You're playing baseball with Jesus. I was going to use football because I'm more of a football fan than a baseball fan. Uh, but football season is almost three months away. So let's go with playing baseball. So you're playing baseball with Jesus. And uh, imagine that you're the pitcher and he's the catcher. Now, if you know anything about baseball, you know that the pitcher and catcher have to be basically on the same page. And when they're not, what happens? Uh, mistakes happen, errors happen, you get overthrown balls and things like that. Uh, the catcher needs to know what type of pitch is coming next. And so what he'll do is, you know, while he's squatting there and he's got his fingers, you know, kind of hidden between his legs so the batter can't see, he's sitting there giving signals to the pitcher uh, of what type of pitch should come next. So imagine that you're pitching to Jesus and he signals you for an inside fastball. But you think you've got a better idea. And so you throw an outside knuckleball. And he chases it and he comes back and he looks at you like, like he's saying, you know, what are you doing? And he gives you the signal for a slider for your next pitch. But as you look over at your team in the dugout, they're telling you to throw a changeup. So a changeup it is and the ball goes wildly off center and Jesus scrambles again, chasing it. And the same thing happens over and over and over again. Now, if I was that catcher, I would just give up on you. I'd stop giving you signals and let you just throw whatever you want and I'll try to guess. But know this. Jesus is different than we are. 
He's not going to give up on us. He's not going to give up on you. In fact, he will never, ever give up on you. He'll chase your bad pitches all day if he has to. He'll keep giving you signals, knowing that eventually you'll realize that your own ideas aren't as good as his. And so we end with the question, how do we live godly lives among the ungodly? How do we live as Christians in a post-Christian society? And the answer is remarkably simple and yet complex, very complicated, by submitting ourselves completely to Jesus, growing in our desire to obey him. Is there a signal that he's been sending you that you just keep ignoring? because you think you've got a better idea? Or are you ready to surrender every area of your life completely and unconditionally to him in obedience? Because that's the only way for us to maintain and grow in our personal holiness as we live among the people of the land. Look to Jesus, who, as the Son of God, has already overcome the world and determine in your own hearts and minds to give him full and unconditional lordship over every area of your life. Because that's the key to living for God among the ungodly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we confess our shortcomings. In the silence of our hearts, Lord, we pray that you would deal with us in your grace, in your mercy. Lord, we we know that the greatest good for ourselves is that we would be conformed to your image, that we would become like you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us through various trials and circumstances, that you would mold us and shape us in your hand to become like you. Lord, I pray that you would identify for us in our hearts the idols that are in contention with you for our love, for our commitment. And we pray, Lord, that you would be faithful with us to maintain your promises. We know that you will be, Lord. And show us that through the victories of life. And help us to look back on those moments in our failures as well. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who glorify you as we try to live godly lives that glorify you in an ungodly world. Teach us, Lord, to keep our flames penetrating the darkness for your glory. In your name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.